Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. I'd like to thank Adele Archer for introducing me to today's guest, Dan Graham, one of the co-founders and general partners of Springdale Ventures. Some of their investments include Eternova, Literati, and Beatbox Beverages. Previously, Dan co-founded buildassign.com in 2005 and grew it to an over $100 million CPG e-commerce business that was eventually purchased by Simpris in 2018 for $280 million. This episode, we talk all things Austin and CPG, the opportunity he saw to form Springdale, why he didn't need to fundraise when building buildassign.com, and how he thinks about brand in relation to e-commerce and retail. This was an awesome conversation, and so without further ado, here's Dan. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. What attracted you to entrepreneurship and the opportunity that you saw when you founded uh, Build the Science? Yeah, you know, I, kind of growing up, I dabbled in doing kid business stuff, you know, and, and so I always sort of had like a natural, I think, love for building building things and selling. And, you know, I, the, the first one I remember, I think I was 12 and I would I would do door to door magic tricks and uh and you had to, and I would do the tricks for free, but you had to pay me if you wanted me to tell you how I did the magic trick. But uh, I, you know, when I got into law school, so I'm from Austin, uh, went to UT undergrad for computer science and then UT law school. And while I was in law school, I was doing web development work on the side just to earn some extra beer money and sort of stumbled across uh, really my first, I would call it like my real business, uh, you know, apart from kind of these side gigs was build a sign, which is a custom e-commerce platform uh, for printed printed products, everything from like signs, banners, t-shirts, business cards. And uh, it really came about because uh, my, my business partners and I were quoting out these websites and one of the companies that asked us for uh, a proposal was a printing company. And we looked at their business model and just saw how much time they were spending in the graphic proofing process with their customers. And they were asking for a super basic website and so we kind of gave him the proposal for the basic website, but then we also gave him this option B that was much more expensive and more elaborate saying, Hey, did you, we could actually build you a Photoshop style tool on your website that would cut out this whole graphic design process. And uh, I think we quoted him $7,000 to build out the first version of this. And uh, we got turned down because it was too expensive. Also the graphic design uh, team at most of these printing companies is usually like their cousin or their uncle. And, and so it was a really hard sell. We, we actually started taking the idea door to door to other printing companies here in Austin, trying to find someone who would want to buy the product from us because we thought it was a really good idea and just got rejected every place we took it. It was either like the internet was a fad. Uh, you know, we had two two different business owners kept calling it the intercom instead of the internet. It's like it's a really antiquated industry. Uh, and ultimately, uh, as we were developing out the prototype to sort of answer questions we were getting from these printing companies, we started. We randomly got an order from someone in the middle of Illinois who had somehow found our website, 
and uh, and then we decided, you know, let's let's put some actual time into the marketing side of this thing and see if we could drive some traffic to it. Uh, and sort of without us intending to get into the printing business, we found ourselves selling printed products without any way to make anything. And no, no manufacturing, we're just a bunch of computer programmers. And uh, we started going back to all these sign shops that had rejected our software and saying, hey, I know, I know you don't believe in the internet, but we've got these orders coming in through it. Can you help us out on the production? Um, we, we found, this is in 2005 too, so it's not like it was like the dawning age of, uh, of, the, of the internet. Um, but it, it was the, a very antiquated industry and sort of one of the last arrivals, I think, into the digital age. And, and so we, we started outsourcing to this local firm. We did that for a couple of months, making very little money uh, as the middleman. And as our volume grew, they began to get our orders out later and later. Ultimately, they gave us a key to the shop and said, look, we're, we're not going to staff up for your orders. We don't really like them. They want to cut these custom one-off pieces. Uh, and if you want to get them out on time, you might as well come work in the back of the shop. And so we did that for a couple months, bringing in like whoever we were dating at the time or could bribe with like beer and pizza. And we'd work till three or four in the morning every night, just getting out that day's worth of orders. Did that for a couple months and then it just got out of hand too, too much time. I graduated my two business, my, you know, my business partners quit their jobs and we got, we bought a machine. We knew how to do the manufacturing part at that point and got into the manufacturing side of the business so that we could actually scale. And, uh, and we were off to, we were off to the races and we grew really rapidly. We were, we hit that market just at the right time. So profitable from month one, you know, we didn't raise any money. We did three, a little over 3 million in revenue our first year, 8 million our second year. And it just grew the business for the, about the next decade. So I want to talk to you a little bit about why you were able to bootstrap. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we were really fortunate in the industry that we were in and combining that with the way that we were selling the product. Uh, both worked to our advantage from a cash flow perspective. So, you know, we were selling our products all online, which meant we got all of the transactions with credit cards. Uh, most of the credit cards that we were getting, you know, we could, um, you know, we, we'd get that money within like three days at, at, at worst. And on the back end, we were paying everybody on a net 30, meaning we had, we got, we'd get an invoice, we'd have 30 days to pay it. And so we were delayed a month on all of our costs. And so as we were growing, we were always paying last month's expenses with this month's revenue. And so when we were growing, what that meant was that our, our cash position in the bank was inflating rapidly as we as we grew our top line revenues so that cash float basically allowed us to self-finance the the business in the early days so talk to me a little bit about once you once you sold build a sign and, and a little bit about what attracted you to uh, investing as well yeah as, as build a sign grew uh, we were probably in year six or seven so drawing a nice profit sharing out of the business and I really was looking for a way to maintain engaging with entrepreneurship uh the as the business grew it kind of becomes its own entity and and it's not it, it stops being entrepreneurial and starts being a real company uh and, and so one of the things i really like to do is mentor do office hours work with other startup uh, entrepreneurs who are getting going and as uh, i started to have capital available i i enjoyed investing and doing a lot of uh, angel investing and the interesting hybrid position of Build-A-Sign, which was sort of a half technology, half 
consumer packaged goods uh, manufacturing organization, uh, you know, I, I began to invest across that line as well. So about half of the invest, investments I was making were in sort of more traditional tech companies and the other half were in consumer packaged goods companies. And, and I just really enjoyed being along for the ride with these, with these founders and entrepreneurs and providing expertise and insight uh, and, and fell in love with sort of being an investor. That's terrific. What led you to Angel Invest to actually building out your own fund? Yeah. So um, a few years ago, I was in my third or fourth year on the board of directors for a local uh, consumer packaged goods accelerator program called SKU. And SKU is a third annual uh, cohort of about six or seven companies, uh, early stage CPG companies. And we put them through about 13 weeks of classes, helping them think about everything from financing to logistics supply to marketing. And we surround them with about 40 local mentor investors who have expertise in different, different categories. And then at the end of the program, we help them go out and put together a pitch deck and deliver their message to uh, in investors and, and raise money. But what SKU didn't do was invest money itself. And the founder, uh, the founders of SKU and the mentors of SKU were all kind of in that angel network category. And there was this uh, gap in Austin, kind of in the early VC category. So if you wanted to go raise, say, $2 million, you weren't big enough yet for kind of the more traditional larger VCs or early stage private equity funds. And raising that kind of money from angels who are writing $25,000, $50,000 checks is really hard. You got to have a ton of coffee meetings. And so there was this gap in, in the market. And private equity, when you get to that size, they'll fly anywhere. But at the time, there was no VC in Austin for CPG. So the, the woman that was running SKU at, at that time, about, about two years ago, and I started scheming around putting together a fund that would fill that gap that we were seeing. Uh, and also at the same time, began planning to create a nonprofit organization in town, which we ended up calling Naturally Austin, which is part of this larger national network called the Naturally Network to really start pro providing more services to those early stage CPG companies. And when we put out a call to kind of the angel investor network, uh, we raised the money really quickly. I think everyone saw the opportunity and the gap in the, in the market. Um, you know, we had already, right at the beginning, we invested in a couple really great deals. So there was good traction that we had to, to show as we were out fundraising. And, uh, and, and we've just been, sprinting ever since but really it was to fill that gap that we were noticing in the funding ecosystem and i remember you saying that when you were an angel you were investing both in technology businesses and cpg and spring deal it seems like it's mostly focused on or, or maybe exclusively focused on cpg type businesses was that focus because uh because due to the opportunity or you enjoy cpg investing kind of more than technology or or am I kind of thinking way too much into this? <laughs> well, it really was just a, a market opportunity. So in, in Austin, technology investing is, that, that ecosystem is very built out. We have Capital Factory and we have Techstars and we have uh, NextGen Angels and CTAN. And we have, there's probably 15 VC funds focused just on tech and software solution, early stage companies. So it was a very crowded space already and versus CPG where there was no one. Uh, and so it was really about the market opportunity there. I will say though that if you look at our portfolio within Springdale, 
it pretty evenly is split 50-50 between very traditional food beverage retail businesses that are selling, you know, into grocery chains and clubs and things like that. And then also e-com commerce, uh, direct to consumer brands that have a very heavy technology component to them, like Literati, which is book club subscriptions for kids or Eternova that's all e-commerce and online remembrance pages for, you know, I, I think you had Adele on your, on your program. Yeah, I did. I did. What makes Austin so special as like an ecosystem? And I mean, it seems like there's a, there, there's quite a lot of CPG. I mean, I can understand like the um, as little I, as I do know about Austin, just from uh, folks that have introduced me to to founders, and and I mean, it seems like there really is a thriving CPG um, ecosystem. But just wanted if, if you can touch on it as well, just uh, j- just how you think about Austin. Yeah, it's a great question and one that I, that people ask themselves all the time, even in Austin. Uh, and, and I think I think it's really a confluence of of things. You know, certainly we have a very young, very entrepreneurial oriented population who are looking around and seeing a bunch of success and a bunch of wealth being generated through entrepreneurship. And so there's, there's stuff, we definitely have that energy here in terms of specifically CPG. Um, you know, one of the, a couple of pieces uh, of, of uniqueness that we have in Austin are around kind of boutique food trucks, um, different kinds of product innovations around kind of the food and beverage. We have a lot of historical successes in those categories as well. Um, whether you're talking about sweet leaf tea or deep Betty vodka or Stubbs barbecue sauce. And, and, and so there's, there's been money flowing now for a while back into the angel investment ecosystem in the category of CPG. And so those, that, that money is getting recycled in, in kind of its future phases and iteration of investment, which is helpful. We've got a couple of billion dollar CPG companies that have come out of Austin now with Yeti and Kendra Scott and, and at the same time, if you go back even farther within the tech space, before there was tech, there was this industrial kind of manufacturing culture around like semiconductors and wafers and, and, and Dell computers and, and sort of more light industrial warehouse logistics kind of background and, and history to, this, to the city. So I think all of those things kind of coming together, uh, along with just general national trend around better for you CPG products has resulted in in just a great a great timing for CPG in, in the city. Yeah, thanks for kind of walking us through a bit of the history in, of Austin. Wanted to also and I've I you know I've I've interviewed investors that interview that um focus more on technology type businesses, non-CPG businesses and investors that focus on CPG uh, exclusively wanted to think wanted to also just ask you how you think about like ROI and returns when you're when you're analyzing and 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 just th- and, and how you think about portfolio construction yeah you know where we are in terms of the stage that we're investing is and in tech follows a similar curve but i think you can get um more investment earlier in earlier phases as a tech company you know you'll see tech companies go raise when they have no revenue in sight uh and and they're they're sort of that you're betting on future value creation based off like user count or um, uh, visibility metrics or something like that that's not tied to revenue. You don't really see that in CPG because if you're not selling your product, what are you doing? And, uh, and, and the selling of the product that naturally generates revenue. So one of the big differences that we see is sort of in that pre-post revenue phase. And there are some 
angel investors that love to invest kind of at the pre-revenue stage. But even then, you basically have a, a baked product. Someone has been in their kitchen making a plant-based queso or whatever the product is. Um, but more typically, you're looking at you know, what is your sales data trends? What are the channels that you're marketing into? And for us as a fund, we'll invest very early, but we won't invest unless it's like an amazingly multi-time proven founder team. You know, we really won't invest earlier than uh, the point where they have some revenue data, where we can actually look at the trends, look at the growth, look at, look at the unit economics and figure out, hey, if we add fuel to this fire, will that be effective in growing the top line of the of the company and getting better, you know, cost of goods sold ratios. And if the answer to that is no, then we then we'll just it's probably too early for us. Um, and they probably should either do a little bit more experimentation on the sales side, or they should go find maybe some angels who to take to take a bet on them. And if we were doing if we were at the same size fund at the same stage with technology, we wouldn't be able to do that. We'd have to either either be spending um, a, a lot more money at a much higher valuation to get the same kind of point in time from a revenue data perspective, attraction perspective with a tech company, or investing way earlier and at much higher risk uh, with a pre-revenue technology company. And so, when we think about return profile, you know, we might say on average, trailing twelve months revenue. 4x that is a kind of sweet spot average for the companies that we're investing in. And we're looking at companies that we think over the next five years, we can get 10x our money back. If we were investing in a similar valuation for a tech company, we'd be betting on pre-revenue companies. And because of that, the risk is a lot higher. And we would instead have to get the same IRR, you know, the same return for the fund. We'd have to be kind of betting that every company could be 100x on the valuation front uh, because of the added risk. And from a portfolio perspective, if you're kind of the super early VC, you might expect half your companies to go to zero on the technology side versus in CPG, because we have the data and the revenue traction, we would, would be upset if you know more than 10% of our companies went to zero. And so it's just a different sort of phase and a different psychology around how the valuations occur and where where that what that's based on from a revenue and a profit perspective as you kind of were leading to in for a consumer technology company it's a bit more of a it's typically more of a binary outcome either a one or a zero but if it hits a one it, it could be a hundred x it could be an uber a thousand x right um but for cpg you're probably not going to get that the, the, those types of returns, it might be more of like a, a 10x or 20x, which is phenomenal, but you'll have more of those type of returns in your portfolio, or that's that's the hope at least, then you'll have, you know, one company going to 100 or 1000 and the rest of them going to zero. Wanted to talk because I know that you invest in, in, in a lot of uh, DMVBs, the entry point to create and start your own DMVB is so low. How do you, when you're thinking about investing in a company, how do you think about them getting past that noise and being able to kind of get to actually become like a, a category leader? Because it just seems like there's so much competition. Yeah. And, and there's, I think there's a, a few ways to look at it and maybe three main ones. You know, one is what is, do they have something unique or something specialized around their customer acquisition strategy? And so if, if, if the typical route for most of the players is to go 
direct to kind of the, the large distributors or the large businesses to place their product. And they're looking at hundreds of brands every week and trying to decide which one to put out there to their customers. That's, that's a really hard uh, game to play. Uh, but at the same time, if they're, if they're able to use a, a, a particular skill set that they've developed in other businesses around acquiring customers online or acquiring customers through digital marketplaces or through media placements, you know, so like the uniqueness and the, and the growth marketing strategy and the team that exists at the company is, is uh, one place to look. And, you know, and what we found too, is that having a really badass growth marketing team is, is, is somewhat unusual in the, in the CPG space. And so that's a really good place to look for differentiation. The second one is there are products that just do differentiate and they are unique in some way and they have something that no one else has. And, um, and they've got intellectual property around it. Um, I, I think like Adele is a good example of, of something like that where, you know, there isn't, there's just not anyone else doing that, even though there are other people in the grief space. Um, and, uh, and then, the, and then the third is relationships within the, the kind of bigger, customer set, whether they've got like particular ends or particular channels. We have an investment in, in a company um, where he, his family has relationships for uh, in, in India with the, uh, with the largest cashew growers in the world. And that provides a unique asset to that investment and, and their ability to grow and scale that, that isn't available to just anybody who comes up kind of with a new formula or a new recipe or a, a, a new angle on a product. I, I, I think that's a really good way to think about it. Wanted to also touch on just because I know that you talked about, you know, having a badass growth marketing team and but wanted to, as an investor, how are you thinking about organic versus paid acquisition? Yeah, I think about, I mean, I think about them similarly in terms of, you know, when you're making an investment, Form, I feel like formulaic growth is your friend. And so I struggle when someone has purely a word of mouth strategy or purely a uh, PR driven growth strategy. You know, that's to me, those aren't things that are easily controlled unless you have a ton of data to show that you have a, a really like closely tied cause effect relationship with something that they're doing to drive growth. Um, and so what are, you know, thinking about what are the different levers that they can spend money on to drive additional customers and have that be a proven relationship is is really an important thing and i think kind of a necessity in order for us to bet a large amount of money on that model and so you know organic is great um but i think you know you have to be able to to sort of show or i think organic oftentimes is used as a well this is just growth that's happening to us and we don't really control it and it, but it's great. And, but I think like the deeper question is how reliable is that and how can you scale that? What are the, what are the things you can, uh, you can do to increase organic growth? And those have to be believable versus like a paid marketing channel is a bit more scientific and a bit more formulaic. And so it's a little easier to bet on if you know kind of what the levers are and where, uh, where the return is going to plateau in terms of spending more money on those digital channels and is I, I feel like a little bit more more reliable, kind of like building out a sales team. If I know that for every salesperson I hire, they can make 100 calls, and out of those 100 calls, 50 turn into leads. Out of those 50 leads, we close five people. Those five people spend this much, and that's 10 times the cost of our salesperson. 
and the market's a thousand times bigger than what they're able to call, great, let's go hire 20 more salespeople and accelerate that. So that kind of like formulate growth path, I think is, is what we're looking for, regardless of the, whether it's organic or digital or sales or, um, you know, whatever the growth channel is. That's really interesting because when I've talked to some past investors, they've talked about how you have to have organic growth. You can't just switch on the growth uh, paid acquisition and, and your paid acquisition can't be all you talk about. But what you're saying is, of course, organic growth, you know, it's 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 um, it's it's certainly important, but you can actually judge and 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 really then really divvy into the actual metrics. If you can actually if your actual company is scalable, if the actual funnel that you're using is working on growth. Right. Yeah. And I think and again, it depends. Organic is sort of a catch all term. And so like organic search growth is really referring to SEO, you know, kind of natural search engine placement. And that's manipulable. You know, you can spend money and drive your position in the search results up and you can measure, there are tools out there where you can kind of measure like, okay, well, what's the additional traffic I'm going to get if I go from position 42 to position five? And is that worth the amount of money that it's going to take for us to get to that position? Or if your organic growth is um, lifetime value, which means your customers are spending more as a as a customer over a 12 or 24 month period. Well, you can manip- manipulate that. You can add side deals or reminders or email drip campaigns. Or if your organic growth is word of mouth, well, what's what is the average number of people that every customer is talking to, and how do you incentivize them to go out and share more? So, I, I, depending on what they mean by organic. Um, I would say if they're just bucketing it in general and, and making a blanket statement without kind of getting into the particular channel, it may be because they're not sophisticated around those those types of channels. Now, do you like to see like a, a diversification of channel usage or do you like entrepreneurs sticking to maybe one channel? Yeah, it, so um, it depends on how much revenue they're driving, I think. So I, I, I certainly advocate for doubling down on anything that's working and spending the money until you return plateaus and you decide it's no longer worth to spend the next marginal dollar on that particular channel and going for the low hanging fruit. Um, if, if you have, if there are three channels that provide a positive ROI, go out, I would definitely go after all three. If, you know, if you don't have the bandwidth for it, is that because it's not providing enough return? And in general, the, the cost to go after a particular channel should be worth the return you get. And so if you've got three channels where the return is profitable then it's you know you should be able to afford to put the resources in into all three. Um, if I would say from an investor perspective, you know it's it's better to invest in a company that has multiple channels because it's just because it's less risky. You know, it, it it Google could change its algorithm, for example, and your search results could go down. Um, you know, they do these like algorithm changes and stuff, and it can impact different companies different ways. Or a competitor comes in that particular space and it doubles your cost per acquisition. Um, in, in on Amazon, and that creates a, a problem for that channel. So if you have multiple channels, it allows you to kind of weather these storms a bit better, and that just makes it less risky from an investment perspective. And probably, in general, the more channels, the more upside and more revenue opportunity overall you you have. Want to touch a little bit on Amazon as well? I had one investor who said. Uh, when I asked what's the biggest advice for for a CPG company, they say you have to have an answer to the Amazon question about selling on Amazon. How should founders maybe approach Amazon? Yeah, I mean, Amazon has effectively become the search engine for uh, CPG, and so you know it's 
in, in the years you know since Google has launched and has been a money printing machine, Amazon has been their one detractor from a uh, kind of an overall enterprise value perspective. Because when if you if you're going to search for you know a, a piece of furniture or something, you're not going to do that on Google anymore. You're going to go do that on Amazon. So I think there's a ton of customer demand that is all funneled through Amazon. And to the extent that you're you want your brand to get in front of all the customer eyes that are out there. Amazon is an important channel. It's just where there's, it's, it's like the world's largest grocery store that it has almost zero cost to entry to go get on the shelf. And, you know, it's, it is though a very different environment than the traditional kind of CPG sales into retail stores and requires a totally different skill set to, to have a presence there. And so I, I, it's, I, it's very uncomfortable for a lot of kind of more traditional uh, CPG companies. Um, and, and it's a totally different way to look at, at selling, but it's also very, very, very formulaic. You know, it's, sometimes it's hard to get data on what's going on. If your product is on a shelf in a store, you don't really know like, well, how many people are walking by it? Do they like the packaging? You know, of the people who walk by it, how many pause and look, how many of them buy? Some stores won't even give you the revenue data. You know, all you know is how many the store is buying, but you don't know how quickly or how often people are buying it off the shelf versus something like Amazon gives you extreme levels of detail on all of the purchasing behavior and you can track everything. Uh, but that is a totally different skill set for a, a CPG company. But I think of it as a, just another channel. It's very successful for a ton of companies. And so I think, I think probably one of the biggest red flags in terms of having an answer to that question is if you don't have an answer, that implies you haven't thought about it. And if you haven't thought about it, it's such an obvious place to market your product that that's like a red flag to an investor that you are maybe just not, uh, you know, the type of entrepreneur that they would want to give their money to if you haven't even thought of Amazon yet. Are there any particular qualities you like seeing founders? It's interesting. So just from the founder perspective, and it's probably one of the hardest things to define in, in, like, in like an objective way or with words, but you know, you're looking, I'm looking for a founder who is super passionate, super energy, energetic, ambitious, has big dreams for the company, believes in the product, but also someone who listens and really, even if they disagree, has a receptive and kind of a humble approach to conversation and discussion around different channels. Um, when we invest, we're really looking for, you know, someone who is going to be receptive to ideas, who's going to be a true partner for us and wants us to be a partner for them. One of the value values that we bring to the table is a network of connections and experts and we don't want to put our political capital on the line with our advisors and investors to get them in front of our founders if the founder isn't going to be receptive and be a, a humble pleasant person to talk to so it's it's kind of this interesting combination i think of super bright driven passionate ambitious but also humble uh open and and receptive it's one of those things that is hard to define yeah i feel, I feel like i feel like usually you just hear looking for rock stars or badass entrepreneurs what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> right right how do you think about first mover advantage when it comes to consumer brand like you're looking at um, a new a new product 
that might be in a new category. Is first mover a big advantage in brand? It can be. I think it. I think it's more important for retail. Uh, retail buyers will, you know, they're not going to put every product in a particular brand category on the shelf at once, and so they have kind of notions of where the hot new categories are and what their customers are looking for. And, you know, if, if today you're the first person who has something they think fits that need, then they might say, great, let's give this a trial run across some of our locations and they'll, and they'll sign. And then at the very next day, a competitor comes in with the same product. They would, they would actually say, oh, we just signed somebody, you know, yesterday. And so we're going to wait and see how that goes. And um, so that that second person won't get the exact same opportunity that the first person did. In online channels, it's a little, it's, it's more um, about, uh, you know, all Amazon and Google and, and these channels, they're trying to make money from ads. And so they care less about first mover because they're just, well, who wants to spend the most money with us? And we'll put, we'll put them at the top. Um, but there are uh, benefits to having a recognized brand, even in those channels, because what, what, at least like say for Google, for example, if there are a lot of people who are on Google searching for your brand, Google recognizes that and they say, oh, this is a sort of more established company. Therefore, we're going to give them a little bit of a free boost in the rankings. And so, you know, even, even Google and these algorithms will put a little bit of weight on established brands, um, but it is different than just kind of pure retail. So I, I think it is, it can be important because you get, you get mindshare first, you get the first placements and, and that does box out the followers a little sometimes, but it's, it's definitely not, it's definitely not the case that if you have a great product and one other company is out there doing it, you shouldn't pursue it. I think there's plenty of room for competition in, in CPG. That makes a lot of sense. How has COVID impacted how you invest? Yeah, that's it's that's a great question. And, you know, it's something that we have been adapting our perspective on as we've continued to go through this. <clears throat> you know, but they, um, for the most part, our portfolio has done really well um, because our, the, the two types of investments that I mentioned that we make one being traditional food and beverage retail. People are all the grocery order from home. I mean, the, that has gone up. People aren't eating at restaurants uh, to the same degree. So that, that food and beverage that they would normally be getting at, at a restaurant, they're now buying from the stores. So sales are up um, on, on those types of products. And then, the, <clears throat> and then the other type of, you know, the other bucket for us is the direct to consumer online e-commerce that is up uh, extensively. Most, I think, I think every company that we have that's in that D to C online model is experiencing explosive growth during COVID uh, because people are just ordering from home like crazy. You know, the, the book club subscription for, for kids, libraries and bookstores are closed. People are ordering books at home. We have a company that sells home cookware. People are cooking at home and, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of growth there. So, for us, um, what we think about is what for more more actually than where not to invest is how do we normalize the numbers of the companies we're looking at for a non-COVID environment, and that, and for us that's actually taking out what we've been calling kind of the COVID bump to try to get okay well when it comes back down what do we think the the trajectory is go, is going to look like one of the types of investments that we 
have stopped doing is being, you know, if we were going to write a $500,000 check, say into a two and a half million dollar round, um, we pre COVID would be generally very comfortable being the first check in on that round. Now, because of COVID and a bit of the uncertainty over the next year, we're much more hesitant to do that. We want to know that they've got the run rate for the next 12 to 18 months before we commit our check, which means we're, much, you know, we're, we're more comfortable being in the middle of the pack or at the end of the round than at the beginning. So it's changed some of our timing uh, a, a bit. Um, and there are certainly some categories that are not doing well right now. Um, you know, food, food and beverage that primarily sells through restaurants or at coffee shops are, are down. Um, but at home, coffee subscriptions are going really well. So it's, it's very interesting. When you're, when you're analyzing new investments opportunities, is it harder since you have to meet with the founder virtually and not in person? Maybe subtly, not in, I think, a, a real substantive way. I mean, I always prefer to meet with people in person if you're, you know, if you're trying to gauge them as their character and their passion and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I found I found Zoom to be pretty effective, and and I've been able to get comfortable pretty quickly with with founders that you know that we're visiting with and and uh, and thinking about investing in. That's awesome. And 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 in terms of like your portfolio companies, has um, like work from home has that been a okay adjustment in terms of just managing teams and everything? A lot of them even have hybrid policies where they will have like the manufacturing and the warehouse logistics side, which cannot work from home. And, and so putting in place, you know, the right precautions and cleaning regimens and um, PPE guidelines and, and things like that has been very important. Um, we thankfully haven't had any issues or outbreaks in any of our portfolio companies. Uh, but at the same time, then they're, if they have a front up to the extent they have a front office that's separate, those have all been moving to work from home. And I think probably like all of us, working from home if you're used to working in person is you know there's general kind of mental health concerns like what you know to look being extra vigilant about thinking about depression and kind of cabin fever and that kind of stuff anxiety um so we talk about it more uh, but we haven't had any any issues any standout challenges so far knock knock on wood that's good what are some consumer trends that you're currently really excited about i i am re actually really excited about this e-commerce direct consumer spike that we're seeing i'm very curious to see and think about what will last post covid you know what habits trends um, what what will consumers be comfortable with moving forward that maybe they weren't as comfortable with before um, one of the it really interesting and startling statistics is I think kind of going into COVID close to 15% of consumer transactions were done online. And that number is now approaching 30%. I think it was like 28%. Um, and, you know, when we were, everyone was kind of thinking, oh, we will, maybe we'll get to 20% by the end of 2021. Um, and, and suddenly we're there almost at 30. Um, and so I'm very excited about that. I think uh, that's a, that is certainly a trend that we expect to see last outside of COVID. I think people who are right now being forced to order things to their home are going to realize that that is extremely convenient and that they don't mind getting things delivered. And so I expect that to probably be a big reset in the mentality of a lot of the players in CPG, actually. Um, I, I think that it's going to derail a lot of the other kind of 
trends that were happening because people are going to be scrambling to figure out what does that mean for club purchases at Sam's or Costco? And what does that mean for favor and these types of delivery services? And if I'm a big retailer, should I be acquiring a service like that? Or how do I think about pickup delivery type uh, transactions versus my normal kind of expectation that 90% of my customers are going to walk through the store every time they come. Um, and that's going to trickle down to all the, all the different companies as well. And it's going to affect packaging. Like you're talking earlier about brand being so important. Well, brand is, is, uh, important in a totally different way when it's off the internet, when you're buying off the internet than if you're walking through a store. And so I, I think it's going to trickle down and impact a lot of the decision-making that's happening across the industry. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a really good point in terms of like the rise of, of e-commerce. Listen to another podcast that focuses on retail, and they were saying how what Walmart was was going to be spending uh, building out their infrastructure online in a, in a, in a few years. They've, been, they've spent it all in like a couple months. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if we start seeing, in addition to the, all the Amazon vans that you now see everywhere, you know, if we'll start seeing... Walmart vans or, you know, how are these other huge retailers going to think about this delivery problem and how much of their margin are they going to be willing to give away to Amazon or UPS? When you get to a certain scale, if you're already positioned in every single city in the country, they've got to be thinking about that. Of course. So what's, what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? It's an interesting space. It's there's not like an efficient marketplace that relates as it relates to venture capital and how venture capital invests. It really is still sort of this, I'm going to go out there and knock on doors and talk to family offices and talk to angel investors and do my dog and pony show. And then, you know, they're going to, they're going to invest in kind of this thesis that I throw out there and, and, and how much they like me. It's really bizarre. I think it would be better for the entrepreneur if if uh, if there was more transparency and also just like availability of uh, uh, across the country of of where the funders are, what are they looking for, um, who are the funds out, who are the all the funds out there that have available capital. Um, you know that will I don't think that will happen, but I think that it would it would create much better deal flow for the funders. I think it would create more transparency for the ultimate LPs or the investors. And it would certainly create uh, better pricing for the entrepreneurs. I think a lot of a lot of the entrepreneurs, they're sort of limited by who lives next to them. And you know, that there's not a really a good way. There's no like network for them to access to say, here's my deck, here's my idea. What is this worth? You know, they're probably going to reach out to whoever they might know and they might talk to, unless they're just really kind of already know how to, how to play the game. They're going to end up with a, a investor set that's local and they're in this exact same company, even if it's a national company, it's going to get a vastly different valuation if they start in San Francisco versus Austin versus Columbus, Ohio. And it, it has nothing to do with the fundamental value of the company just has to do with their access to that capital. And so I feel like, I feel like that would be the one thing I would change is to come up. It would be ideal if there was a a broader view and a broader system for visibility and and kind of fairness and and access to information around where is the capital and where is it going and and how, what's the best way to allocate that? No, that, yeah, it's, you know, making it less of a, a who's who network. Yeah. And I think that's why we see huge discrepancies in the number of women founders that are funded or minority founders who are funded is for that exact same 
reason is just their network isn't there. Totally, totally. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. What is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Great question. I think I think for me, in, in terms of how I engage with people, both personally and professionally, is uh, give and take, uh, which, which is about really just how you approach relationships and business development. Whether you're, I think it's most valuable probably for salespeople and and you know people who are out there trying to make make deals happen. When you, you know when you come to a relationship and are you thinking about what can I get out of this and how do I extract the value that I want from this relationship versus thinking coming to a relationship and thinking what does the other person need and what do they want and how can I add value to the relationship for them and then ultimately what the result is of those two different mindsets when you come in, come into a relationship. So I, I, I really, uh, took a lot from, from that book. Um, I would say purely on the professional side, I loved, um, never split the difference, which is a book on negotiation. Uh, awesome, awesome book by, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, the stories are amazing. He's a ex hostage negotiator. And anyway, it's a great, great book. And, th- and then on the pure personal side, there's a book called leadership and self-deception. Um, which is which is an amazing read, um, and is very much about um, the the types of the types of interactions and relationships and conflicts that we have with others, both at at home and at work. But then how how to kind of think role in in those of uh, mental mentality and and uh, psychological effect we have on ourselves by the way that we interact with others. And and I, I thought that was a, a fantastic read as well. No, that's awesome. Yeah, there's a been been a few investors that have uh, uh, also cited uh, give and take and never split the difference. And so added, uh, also excited to add the third one as well to the reading list. My final question for everyone is, what's one, p- one piece of advice that you have for a founder of a B2C company? Yeah, I think one of the things that just is so hard to learn and it's not taught anywhere, and I didn't do it until far too late, is spend a significant amount of time networking. And you know, have coffee, set aside time every week for multiple coffee conversations or, or Zoom conversations. Um, get to know people, not just in your industry, but at, who are running, people who are running other companies, even other types of companies. There's so much to learn from other industries. You know, and that's, I think that's how we innovate is we bring ideas from unrelated organizations and unrelated sectors. Um, we we're all very familiar with our own sector and our own business. And so you're not going to get a lot of new stuff just thinking about that. So uh, get out there, network. Um, and, and then specifically, uh, so, uh, something that I see found, founders do, and I did, and, and then once it, is reach out and network and get to know your competitors. Um, it's a little weird, and some of them aren't used to it for sure. But I learned so much from developing relationships with my top competitors and uh, not only did I glean ideas from them of things that we should be pursuing, but also when it came time to start thinking about uh, acquisition growth strategy um, or selling our business, that network was extremely valuable. And so that, that would be a specific type of networking that I think it, it, for a founder is really useful. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. It's actually, I don't think that's something that's uh, been mentioned before as well. Just getting to know your, your actually networking with your competitors. Dan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun.
Oh, this is great. It was so good to chat. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Dan about all things e-commerce, retail, Austin, and just how he approaches investing. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.